What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I love doing this podcast, and I'm grateful to have the support of two of the most popular and respected companies in the Bitcoin space. If you already know all about how River and CoinKite can help you buy and secure your Bitcoin, skip ahead 75 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite makes some of the most badass Bitcoin hardware there is. Their flagship product is the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, a feature-rich tool for taking self-custody of your Bitcoin, which has been a favorite of hardcore Bitcoiners for many years. CoinKite is also the maker of the wildly popular Block Clock series, which are standalone or wall-mounted devices which track and display things like the current Bitcoin block height, the SATs per fiat exchange rate, the Bitcoin price, and many other data points of interest to a Bitcoin enthusiast. It might not sound that exciting, but it's almost bizarrely satisfying to be able to glance over at it and watch as new blocks are added to the chain. The recently released Block Clock Micro, a smaller and more affordable option, is now available at their store. Check it out, along with a ton of other stuff for securely using and having some fun with your Bitcoin at CoinKite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their excellent customer service, stellar team, and for their principled and dedicated approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Here we are. Good. Uh, I'll probably butcher this. Apologies. Aliaj, uh, thank you for joining me. It's, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion, and, and welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are another one of the, the people that uh, accepted my Calendly link to kind of book yourself in and uh, presumably because you had a, a few things you wanted to discuss, and I'm, you know, we can break into pretty much anything, but before we do, can we and myself just get a bit of a background on, you know, who you are and what you do, and then we can take it from there? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. So I'm the CEO and founder of Bolt Observer. We've been doing that for the last year, but before that, I worked for about three and a half years as a head of platform for Bitstamp, doing all kinds of uh, things there, infrastructure, security, etc. Uh, before that, I mostly enterprise IT, things like that. Uh, so that's briefly my background, more from the IT side coming into this space. Right, through- and you... And you are from or based in uh, in Slovenia? Uh, I am from Slovenia, but currently escaping the European winter in Mexico. Oh, nice, smart man. Um, yeah, I was in. I went to. I visited Ljubljana and a few other places um, in 2018. Lovely country, you know. Probably yeah, cold in the winter, but it's. I I I enjoy myself in the summer. Yeah, I, I can relate to the summer <laughs> sentiment. Um, what was your, you said you worked at Bitstamp for a number of years, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what was your kind of, what's your rabbit hole story? What was your entry into into Bitcoin? Oh, that's, uh, I get. I guess I got into Bitcoin first around 2014, but purely as a, way of paying for things anonymously and like moving money around especially coming from more of a shithole country we weren't exactly favorites on any popular fintech solutions like paypal and stuff so it was even harder to move money around or accepting money for services and stuff like that of the internet 
so I got into that uh, like 2014, but didn't really click for anything else. So used it a bit back then, then maybe for kind of forgot about it uh, for two years, I guess. Then I got back into the whole crypto scene late 2016. Then too much trading, let's say like that. <laughs> <laughs> Explore the whole blockchain space for a bit. Uh, and then at the beginning of 2018, I joined Bitstamp, uh, started working there on infrastructure, getting deeper and deeper into rabbit holes, seeing uh, that everything else really doesn't make that much sense. Still traded way too much, but uh, <laughs> then finally started playing with lightning and uh, getting down that rabbit hole, but then uh, also going more onto the philosophical side of Bitcoin and monetary and, and everything else. So that's when it finally clicked and I it took me a couple more years to quit my enterprise job and finally started building something of my own on Bitcoin. But uh, that's kind of short of it. Right. It, Bitstamp is a Slovenian start company, right? It's started it, in Slovenia? It started in Slovenia. It hasn't really been a Slovenian company for quite a while. But Right, right. Was um, You said in 2014, the banking infrastructure, maybe access to external banking infrastructure was difficult in Slovenia. Is that Was that the case? And is that still the case? No, it's not now it's much easier, but even before 2014, like using services like PayPal and things like that was not that generally supported. Getting access to other services is a bit more complicated, which right. Bitcoin made extremely simple. So it it really clicked from me for me from a payment side and permissionless money system, but not, not as much as a store of value for quite a longer time because th that was my primary use case and I mm. understood that immediately how how much of a game changer it is uh, that you can do something without some compliance officer somewhere agreeing that they recognize the name of your country somewhere yeah exactly my impression when I was there in 2018 was that um, I don't know how to characterize it but it seemed like there was quite a bit of startup energy there like slovenia was becoming or at least ljubljana or, or whatever that uh, it was like a business tech hub district close by was becoming a bit of a you know kind of a, a success story maybe in, in europe a little bit for kind of startup activity is that being too generous yeah i mean we definitely went full in on the ico craze Right. Well, yeah. Because, I mean, the, the whole crypto <laughs> scene was pretty big in Slovenia, especially because Bitstamp was one of the early success stories like, right. in space in general. So that, of course, influenced some of the local scene as two founders from a local village created something that was very known in the space at the time. But yeah, 2017, everyone and their waitress had an ICO in Slovenia. So that, that, that fueled a lot of that craze but uh there is a solid amount of activity going on it's just that the whole environment at least in my opinion isn't very well uh suited for businesses and startups due to like legal issues or lack of legal infrastructure 
I mean, I'm right. from Slovenia. Both of my co-founders are Slovenian, but we have a U.S. entity, not a Slovenian one. Right. And there's a reason for that. Right. Right. Um, after the 2017 ICO craze, I'm assuming, you know, public opinion kind of soured on, well, rightfully soured on cryptocurrency, but probably lumped Bitcoin into that bucket as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's not as much Bitcoin seen. I after quitting Bitstamp, I started uh, creating local meetups, and we're starting to kickstart that a bit more. But it was highly more focused on entire shitcoin space, right? And lacking some deeper content on Bitcoin side, but we're progressing that now. I yeah, I noticed. So one of the things you're into as well is. You you host the Ljubljana meetup or you put it yeah. together or something like that. What's that like these days? You know, so let's say 2017 was a bit rough, but what what kind of uh, interest in Bitcoin is there on the ground these days? Uh, it's pretty good. We're getting around 40, 50 number uh, members monthly, so that's I think pretty solid for a small city startup. Considering totally. Ljubljana is not really a big city, and we also recently translated Bitcoin Standard, which got a bit uh, publicity. And nice. a bit more interest. What do you guys do at the meetups? Uh, we generally have a presentation every time, trying to still trying to bootstrap the community to start presenting more. So it essentially started uh, from a couple of friends. We were just meeting, uh, talking lightning all the time. Then at some point we realized, why don't we make this public and actually create events for it? Like there's gonna be interest. So. We started deeply technical, more from like, things that were of interest to us, and just gave us an excuse to like dedicate a couple hours, create a presentation. But now we're trying to also have more broader topics, or maybe now and then a session more for beginners in the space. Maybe help them with some wallet setups, give out some sets. So trying to find a wider appeal because the ecosystem is not big enough to justify a bit those types of events right. or a broader appeal to get people into. But right. we still do deep dive technical sessions occasionally. What um, What's the regulatory climate like in Slovenia around Bitcoin? Uh, personal opinion, horrible. Not everyone would agree, but currently it's undefined. We've been getting promises of some regulation on general crypto situation, but uh, it's kind of looks more like money grab from the government, just trying to not not deal with people and push something through that will bring some additional revenue in without any sensible approach to like what's used for payments, what's Bitcoin or separation, Bitcoin and everything else. So it's not very well put through, but I think that's general sentiment in the entire European Union that uh, let's just run away from it while right. we can. So Slovenia uses the Euro and is part of the EU? Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I guess that makes it a little bit more challenging to do anything unique. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, uh, if you think about it, Bitcoin should be regulated as FX. So considering it is a legal tender in a country somewhere on the planet. So in Slovenia, yeah, Well, they... sure, I agree. But 
you know, selective application of that law, I guess, because nobody, I, I don't, I'm not aware of a country that's treating it that way because it's an official currency of another country. Yeah, I'm hoping that somewhere somebody takes this to court to the highest level. And yeah, then, yeah. And case law. Yeah, hopefully. Um, can can individual EU countries, they, they can't declare legal tender other than the euro, can they? Mm, no, I don't think so. Can they, do they have their own right to, uh, of taxation? Can they just say there's no capital gains on a divestment of a particular thing like Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, because the taxation laws are different across European Union countries. Right. So any country could just say there's no tax on on Bitcoin sale, and then it's effectively that's better, in my opinion. I I don't think. I mean, legal tender laws are just kind of arbitrary and top down, anyways. I I think the the most advantageous uh, treatment, which would allow for the most organic growth and use of an adoption of Bitcoin would just be a hands-off approach, like no pe no no reporting requirement, no penalization for anything, no capital gains. That would be the best. I mean, no argument there. I'm <laughs> thinking from a slightly more practical approach because I don't think that's where we're heading <laughs> right, right. anytime yeah. soon. Don't some countries, uh, I think Germany might, or it might be the case for Germany and gold. I think it was the case for Portugal. After you hold it for a year, which you know would be very difficult to uh, to prove one way or the other, uh, there's no capital gains tax on divesting of Bitcoin. I think Portugal used to have something like that. Yeah, and also many other countries have something like that for other investments as well. So any kind of capital gains if you hold it up more than ten years or something like that. So. I mean, in Bitcoin ethos, that would probably be very acceptable for most of the people. But I'm afraid uh, we don't want to get that uh, reasonable approach from governments to approach this. But it's going to be more try to trying to just find one broom and just sweep everything into one basket and possibly come up with the worst possible solution for everything as government enter. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Um, so apart from this, uh, winter stint in Mexico, are you like, do you live in Slovenia? Well, I'm currently trying to find a new home for myself, new place to call home. So mm. I'm trying to explore something more permanently warm, hopefully. Local. Madeira, something like Madeira? Or I kind of lean towards Latin America as well, especially since adoption here is a bit better than, uh, it seems like a good place to be for uh, somebody who's trying to build a Bitcoin company. Yeah. Have you been to El Salvador? Yeah, yeah, of course. What'd you think? Uh, well, the country is nice. The adoption could be better. <laughs> but, well, this uh, is the point, right? I mean, you can't, you can't legislate adoption. You know, you can, you yeah. can, anyone can make Bitcoin legal tender. You can't make people use it really. And I think that's the case there. And there's probably several reasons for that. The The initial education was lacking. The Chivo rollout was a, a night, a disaster. But, um, and they're benefiting in other ways, of course, from the Bitcoin announcement, the brand of the country, lots of Bitcoiners going there, investments, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the other policies from Bukele, let's say. But um, my impression is on the ground, uh, I mean, apart from like McDonald's and Starbucks and that kind of stuff, very few people are enthusiastic about bitcoin but they're not 
don't get me wrong. Like my impression also wasn't that they're hating on Bukele for it. They're not anti the policy. It's just, you know, one among many of his policies that, uh, you know, they support, but they're just, they don't, it's not that relevant to them at this point. Yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, the the rollout was very bad in my opinion. Yeah, I, yeah. I visited last year for adopting uh, Bitcoin conference and like nothing worked. I mean, yes, it worked in McDonald's, but like people were struggling with Chiva. The app was nowhere. I mean, if you think about it, it was like three months since they announced from the announcement to the implementation. Like there's a reason this takes, these things usually take longer. Even getting an app that works out in three months, it's pretty wild. But yeah. if you actually need to create an infrastructure for the entire country, could have taken a bit more time, slowed it down. Because I think in this case, move fast and break things was not the best approach. Yeah. But also mostly educating people. That that's where I think they failed the most. Because speaking with people, like besides those that were already in the space or understood it, it was very hard to tell them and especially the separation of Chivo and Bitcoin was not clear or is still not clear. But I think I was also there last November, a couple of months ago. The infrastructure is much better now. Like when you pay with Bitcoin things, just work if they're using Ibex or any other solution. Right. If they use anything other than Chivo, it works pretty good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's a lot less people accepting it uh, compared to a year ago. So we'll see how that uh, story ends. I mean, I'm still bullish on the long-term about El Salvador, but I'm strongly hoping they also create an environment that's more friendly for businesses because that, that would solve a lot of problems for many funders that want to accept Bitcoin. Well, have a subsidiary in El Salvador and your problems are solved like that. But all the bureaucracy that usually follows you in Latin America isn't necessarily the most conducive to insane amount of companies rushing to get into El Salvador. So you still need the rest of the infrastructure, not just a bill saying that you can pay with Bitcoin. Yeah, I've heard I've heard the same from people that have looked into it. You know, the government at least claimed that they were rewriting a bunch of their uh you know, commercial laws or whatever they're called to be more conducive to business, to, you know, free market principles, let's say. And I, I think, I'm not sure if that legislation was, legislation was bundled in with the volcano bond stuff, but have you looked into it? Like, is it still just crazy bureaucracy and not very, you know, uh, so-called open for business? I've heard that they're supposed to do something soonish, but I didn't check if that was bundled into the volcano bond thing. I kind of don't want to break my teeth on trying to do this, <laughs> letting somebody else figure it out first. But even among friends, people that we talk to, there is interest in having that option. It's just, let's make it easier. You can click together a company in Delaware in five minutes. We need that level of yeah. service. Man, it, it just seems like there's such an insane insane opportunity. Like if they, well, first of all, everything seems on the up and up. I've been there three times and every time I go there, 
things are improving. The energy and the vibe is better. People are optimistic. There's lots going on, you know, so it definitely seems like it's going in the right direction. And the Bitcoin thing is obviously a, a positive for many reasons. But if they would just, you know, put that last piece of the puzzle where they, you know, were open for business, everything was as efficient and streamlined as it could be, as open free market as it could be, you know, the impact on a small country like that of, of, that cat getting out of the bag and all these entrepreneurs and all these investors and all these people that want to escape Slovenia, Canada, wherever they're from and go live in a, basically a tropical paradise uh, would be, I think would have a tremendous impact on the impact on the country in a very short period of time. So, and I mean, they must be aware of that because they're not, they don't seem like they're stupid over there. So maybe it's just difficult to, you know, turn around the bureaucratic Titanic or something like that. Yeah, I'm imagining that might be one of the cases, but I'm strongly hoping that it actually happens because it would be great. And the country is nice, food is great. I always love spending time there and I'm always sorry that I didn't book a longer trip. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they I... definitely do a bit more to make it easier uh, to get there. And yeah, well, I, well, I mean, once once people start showing up with a whack of Bitcoin to spend, then, you know, there's going to be businesses that respond to that incentive and they make it easy to spend Bitcoin and others will take note. I mean, as you said, we have to appreciate how early it is, you know, that the law went in past or was implemented in the fall of 2021, 2021 or 2022. I think it was 2021, right? Uh, so it's like, you know, a year and a half old, which is absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. So put another five years on that, another 10. And, you know, again, if, if things continue to go well and the violence is kept in check and all that jazz, then I'm I'm very bullish on the prospects for El Salvador. I mean, even the locals I spoke with are very bullish. People mm -hmm. are starting to return from U.S. back to El Salvador, which is a generally yeah. very good sign that country is going in the right direction. Well, yeah. People start to migrate back. It's just probably going to take a bit more time to get all the ducks in a row. And I, I think also the timing of the market doesn't help because no, of course. Not, not many Bitcoiners are very keen to drop lots of sets on paying for coffee and goods right now. So because we're all stacking, so then maybe there's even less demand uh, locally. But and also everyone who, you know, locally in El Salvador, who kind of got up, got excited about everything happening at, you know, all time highs, basically, now they're feeling the pain of of being where we are. So that, that definitely puts a, a wet blanket on things. But still, I mean, I, I shared I had, you know, the, my experience with locals was very similar. Like I, I talked to a couple uh, taxi drivers going to and from the center of, of town one day. And uh, yeah, like, even just the pace of the turnaround, is what I think generates a lot of that optimism and positive energy because they both of them shared with me that even just in, in 2018, so four years ago, uh, down in that, like one of the main squares, even locals were afraid to go there and they certainly wouldn't bring anything of value like a phone or a camera or anything like that because there's so much crime and there's so much violence. And now, I mean, we walked through there, not only like felt safe, but you know, locals were sitting on the park benches saying, Hey, welcome to uh, El Salvador. Welcome to San Salvador. And, you know, there, it was hustling and bustling and people were selling goods and, and, and in their own words, they were like, you know, it's a complete 180. Now we feel safe. We feel free. We can go about, you know, whatever our thing is pursuing a better life for ourselves. And we don't have to worry about 
the violence and the crime and that kind of stuff. And just imagine what kind of effect that has on, on people that were beaten down by the fear and anxiety of that kind of circumstance for so long. Like, you know, if you're worried about being extorted or the gangs or, you know, crime or violence of any kind, you don't, you don't want to go beyond your known territory. You don't, you're not, it doesn't inspire you to go out and make the most of life. If anything, it, you withdraw. And now the opposite is happening, you know? And so, and they're coming from such a, you know, this is the wrong way to put it, but kind of a low state, you know, you had the 20, you know, a lot, many years civil war, and then you had a brief, you know, reprisal from that a reprieve from that. And then you had, you know, a decade of horrendous gang violence and, uh, I'm always amazed that despite those two things and having and how recent they were, the people seem so friendly and and warm and and generous and kind. Like everyone I met when I was there was just awesome, you know, like better I, better than most people I've met in most countries, strangely enough. Yeah, I totally agree with the sentiment. And people are awesome, always willing to help generous and everything and i've i've never felt unsafe in el salvador and i've walked around san salvador pretty extensively been to the city center everything it's just i mean th there's more military on the streets in mexico than san salvador mm. by a big margin yeah so i've, I've heard the, the expression that the el salvador will become the singapore of uh Latin America thrown around a couple of times, and I deeply hope that that's going to be true. That's why I'm potentially excited to spend some more time there to be, um, be at the beginning of that story, which could be a beautiful one. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And all the better if some of the surrounding countries in the area that, well, you know, haven't been the most stable or prosperous countries, if they can get on the upswing as well, you know. That would certainly make it easier because, you know, the other thing about El Salvador and Bukele is that, and I love it because he's basically, um, you know, I know he he's still a, a politician and, you know, statists are going to, are going to state, but he's flipping the middle finger to a lot of the incumbent, you know, legacy powers, geopolitical, financial, or otherwise, which is great to see, but, you know, he's such a, they're such a tiny country and, you know, the influence or the intervention by the U.S. or the IMF, the World Bank, in Latin American countries, particularly small Latin American countries, over the last hundred years, is well documented. And so, you know, I just I'd like it for that target to be a little bit more dispersed and not like solely focused on El Salvador, because you know who the hell knows, you know what what could happen or what the so-called powers that be would have have plans for them. Well, I've, if the volcano bomb pans out, I think we've set a precedent for a huge geopolitical order because there's plenty of countries that would have probably taken this approach or would at least consider it if they could get rid of IMF and all the interventionist policies that come with it. So I'm strongly hopeful in that direction because I think it could set a very nice precedent of how things could look in the future yeah me too are, are they have they been marketed yet the volcano bonds uh no i don't think because the the volcano bond bill was like prerequisite for that so i that, every that time hasn't I, passed yet. every time i look into it it's soon tm yeah yeah that's my impression as well well that's the other i mean 
if it, it it goes through and if it becomes an attractive offering and you have to kind of think in a world uh maybe not full of but with a lot of negative yielding debt that something like the, at least my understanding of, of how the volcano bond will be structured that'll be a, at least attractive to at least some bond investors globally and maybe a decent portion I mean, as you say, I mean, that would really upset the existing financial order of things, or at least has the potential to. And so, I mean, the bond sale could be good for the country, but the uh, the ire that the bond sale will generate might not be so good for the country. So, you know. we'll see. I mean, I, I think that at least the amount is relatively small, and there's enough Bitcoiners in the world that have bags big enough to drop something in the bucket because it's just i mean it's bad to say but it's also a great experiment like totally totally people have burned a lot more than just one billion on a lot more stupid shit in the last couple of years and couple of bull markets so uh, i think totally. even from that perspective they should be able to get it together even if it's just coming from inside the ecosystem not necessarily from more traditional bond investors and other sources of capital, but it would definitely be good to see non-Bitcoiner capital coming in because that would set a better precedent for the next country and more right. global adoption of it. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it is a big experiment. And again, whatever you think of uh, existing systems of governance, you got to hand it to Bukele, who's, you know, willing to stick his neck out and run these types of experiments because they're novel and they're new and they're unfamiliar to everybody. And, you know, he's making a, a big bet in many ways on the future of Bitcoin. And you and I and all the Bitcoiners listening are probably don't think that's much of a risky bet, but the rest of the world certainly does. And, um, you know, especially for a politician to be the first to do something like that, because, you know, they're always covering their asses and they're you know they they don't have the courage to step outside the the bounds of sanctioned discourse or pol political behavior oftentimes let alone you know have any semblance of honesty or integrity but you know it seems like he's willing to do what he thinks is best and dare i say right at least in some uh some ways or in some capacity so you know long may it continue yeah i mean Let's see what happens. I definitely think that in, if his bet plays off, Bitcoin will be a kingmaker for him because mm -hmm. it will significantly improve uh, the country and rise their status in the region, which will also have impact on surrounding countries, either by making it easier for them to go down the same path or just by trade and everything else. So I yeah, think just, just do the same thing. <laughs> or yeah. something you know something similar follow the the framework to some degree and i mean there's always the uh you always benefit from being the first you know so like as these as other countries make different changes they they probably won't receive the same like bump from the publicity and the press and the bitcoiners that that the first one gets but you know if we're right about bitcoin then any country that does anything conducive to uh well, in, uh, incentivizing a flourishing Bitcoin economy would presumably be beneficial to the people and the country. So, 
Absolutely, but being the first also has its downside because you break your teeth on a lot of things. Right. So being the second might be more beneficial because you learn from the mistakes of the first one. So your rollout gets much smoother. Like now we kind of know what it takes to roll Bitcoin infrastructure out for the entire country, or at least which mistakes you try to avoid. So the process is improved. You know that you need to invest more into education and everything. So I, I think whoever's the second might have it significantly easier, at least in terms of making less mistakes and the infrastructure itself being more mature. Like sure. lightning has progressed significantly in the last year and a half since that happened and everything else. So it's it's gonna be definitely easier for the next one. Totally. Did you hear? anything while you were there or do you have any you know inside knowledge as to why there was so little education surrounding the rollout nothing specific but uh, it's also it was it was so fast it it was three months so like it's very hard it's still a government bureaucracy what what happens in three months probably probably can't agree on the color of the toilet paper let alone (laughs) education of a new monetary system yeah, I mean, I know you're right, but something as stupidly simple as like every phone number, every SIM card gets a PDF of like what is Bitcoin and how to use it. Or when you sign up for Chivo and you input something, phone number, email address, you get sent like just a one pager. Because as you say, I mean, I think, I don't think there was anything actually. And people just were told that they had $30 waiting for them on Chivo and that, I guess, spread. Yeah. And people would sign up just to claim that basically cash out and 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 never use it again. And it didn't seem like there was any, yeah, any any education at any step in that process, which seems like a huge missed opportunity. Because if at least people you're going to give people thirty bucks, you know, throw them a little one pager. Yeah. At least make them read a one pager and yeah. go through three questions in the end or something like that. But also, they didn't benefit from general mistrust in the government. Uh, considering the history of El Salvador. So that Mm. also didn't significantly help the whole new government money, because this is how at least some people understood it. Like it's a digital money that government can steal easier from us. So that's also some of the sentiment that was shared, at least that I heard, especially the 21. Is it? Yeah. Um, All right. Well, tell me, what you've been working on or what your primary focus is other than uh, hosting the, the Bitcoin meetup and stuff. Uh, tell me what, what you're up to. Uh, well, considering I've been playing with lightning for quite a few years since late 2018, and also ran the infrastructure at Bitstamp. I kind of started Bolt Observer to merge my experience on the enterprise side of Bitcoin and crypto custody and everything and all the tooling that's needed in this space. So what you're trying to do is create an enterprise stack of software that eliminates lots of the complexity of running your lightning node, liquidity management, but also more boring stuff that businesses need. I know you need an access for an accountant. You're not giving him SSH access and I here figure it out now you want to connect with QuickBooks button somewhere in the software and things like that because I mean currently there is some open source tooling out there but it's more aimed at enthusiasts and 
hackers who like to play around. But if you're a business, you still sooner or later need to get a PhD in node management and liquidity and all that. But that shouldn't be necessary for uh, you to work on Lightning. So you have River now released the, the RLS service, which is a great step towards it, but it's still a custodial option. So what, what we're trying to build is an alternative to this. So you can still do your own custody, but with our stack, we will just remove all the complexity and essentially the node will run for you, manage liquidity. You can set some business rules, things like that. And based upon that, the operation should run, run smoothly and you can focus on your business. So that's kind of where we're focusing at. So it's both node management, all the things you need to consider to make sure there's no hiccups and no failed transactions and all that kind of stuff, non-custodial, but also um, like analytics and data for, you know, getting yeah. insights into how your, how your business is operating and how it's basically your business's um, yeah, involvement yeah. Or, or activity on the Lightning Network. Yeah, exactly. So we, we started last year, about a year ago, with simple monitoring. So we're just letting you know if your node is reachable over all the options. So Tor, IPv4, Lightning Network, things like that, with all the possible integrations. Then we're slowly adding up to our stack, building on top of that. We have our own explorer, which we develop from our internal needs, because if you want to reach all the nodes on the network, you need to deploy your own infrastructure in a smart way. So we're approach that more of a from a data side and exploring the network from the viewpoint of your node instead of a top-down approach. And now we've built some liquidity services in terms of just making you aware where you are, maybe get waking up in the middle of the night if something happened with your node. And soon TM, we're also bridging that into a Bridging the into the other side of pool management, where you will essentially just set up some rules and liquidity will be managed for you. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of um, companies getting into this space. You know, I, I don't know if it's uh, there's probably some nuance in the differences between them all, but basically, you know, uh, liquidity as a service or lightning management as a node management as a service or you know that kind of stuff. What what I guess the question is, what do you think, or not what you think, based on your experience, what has been the biggest problem that such a such solutions are helping to address? Like, what what are the main choke points or issues that that people that are managing their own nodes are are having at this stage of Lightning's development? Well, it's kind of depends on the profile of the person running it or the business that you're trying to build on it. So, right. routing nodes. I would say are not our primary focus, at least not people just trying to create yield from routing, because that's, if you're good at this, you've been doing this for a couple of years and you've gained a lot of experience, you have a lot of automation, et cetera, built in that direction already. But if you're going more into the business side or focusing a layer higher, for example, we have a partnership with Breeze, Roy and the team, they're trying to create an ecosystem environment for people to build on lightning so there's definitely 
I need to just help you with operation because all the companies in this space are smaller. At least most of us are smaller. So like if you have a three-person team, you're not hiring somebody who just does node management. That's like insanely inefficient in terms of your headcount or where your investment is going. Mm -hmm. So either people are not managing that properly or at least maybe have enough capital deployed on the node that they can be a bit sloppy with it. But also the space is still small. So you say, oh, I'm starting a new company. Maybe I will, some people will open channels to me and that will be okay for now. But the more the space grows, the more there will be, there will be a need for an actual efficient deployment of the capital because you won't just throw away sets and eventually people will actually want to have something in return for their sets or not have insane operational costs just by rebalancing and figuring out what to do, losing business opportunities because like somebody forgot to rebalance the node and people couldn't pay for three days. Like, mm. Things like that that are... You don't think about it if you're using, I don't know, Stripe for credit card payment. Like you never think about, oh, at some point maybe I won't be able to accept the payment. No, I mean, okay, maybe the API goes down, but that's you can't do anything about it. But here in Lightning space, you're responsible for that part as well. So one option is you use a custodial service, but that brings you higher fees and other complications, and potentially with the if not, when or when not, if the space gets more regulated, you all of a sudden, even though you're using Lightning, maybe get some constraints on where you can accept payments from and things like that. Like we already see Cash App is only connecting to like known peers and KYC identities and things like that. So we're already starting to see small subsections of Lightning network or subnetworks, if you will. So if you want to go more sovereign, non-custodial route. You need to have good insight of what you're doing, but also businesses are still small. So besides exchanges, I don't think anybody's turning around thousands of Bitcoins per month on their Lightning node as a merchant. Mm. So things kind of still work or it's not that bad, but the more adoption we get, like the more use cases that come into the space, the more finely tuned this will need to be. Yes, currently, I mean, if you've been in the space for a couple of years, you know that three years ago, payments were maybe yes, maybe no. Now, like sending from a wallet to a wallet generally work, but like all the wallets are just hyper-connected within themselves because, you know, I don't know, from ZBD to Wallet of Satoshi, there's gonna be tons of payments. Mm. they're going to open a channel but when the topology of the network starts growing and we have I don't know, more self-custody self for people or I don't know, Fedimin certain wallets like social custody like uh, Bitcoin Beach things like that, you will have more islands of liquidity that will have to communicate between themselves and so then that's where you need to deploy the capital smartly and start thinking about actually managing that liquidity because you won't be able to just connect to three big providers if we actually get into a world when Lightning Network is sufficiently decentralized and we're not just all using five custodial services. 
So what you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you guys provide is software to automate an individual or individual company's management of their nodes so that they don't have to, so they can remain non-custodial. Is that yes, a proper right. way to characterize it? Yeah. What do you think, um, you know, you mentioned kind of a world where people are more discerning about the channels they open and whom with, you know, and, and kind of uh, alluding to, you know, the potential for a kind of censorship in, you know, in the lightning network, or at least in, in maybe, maybe censorship is the wrong word, but there's, there's, there's something akin to that in selecting only, you know, known partners, let's say, and what, what risks do you think there are, you know, this is kind of a two-part question with one, as you mentioned, like how, it may tend towards centralization as you know you just get these big hubs of liquidity that that people connect to to facilitate all their transactions and then that becomes a risk because you know they could intervene or censor transactions or cut off liquidity uh, and then just censorship generally in in the lightning network and how you see developments over the last 3 years unfolding I mean, <clears throat> firstly i wouldn't characterize that as censorship because the permissionless also implies that like you can decide not to connect with someone. Like if the network is permissionless, you're not forced to do business with anyone. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, fair and, enough, fair enough. Yeah, I, we understand the, the separation, of course. Nobody likes that this is happening, but I'm afraid that this is going to start to happen more and more because at some point, the regulators will want to, will, will need to figure out. Currently, the amounts are small. They have bigger fish to fry. But at some point, many different things can happen. So like maybe you will need a monitoring license that will all of a sudden throw a wrench in 95% of the businesses because like the cost of regulation will be too big for a small business to operate. So then you just have regulatory capture by the river and couple of open node and a couple of other bigger providers that will do it as a service. So that's what I'm afraid of the most. So we need to figure things out in a way and start maybe positioning ourselves against that because current the current sentiment of yeah, let's try to work with regulators to find a loophole how we will operate is not good. Uh, on firstly. Pushing exchanges toward lightning is maybe slightly misguided because there's not that many use cases. It's for exchanges, it's currently more of a vanity project, even though I'm pretty sure people will be mad at me for saying that. Uh, but well, also why, that, why do you say it just because it's not it's not tremendously relevant to the business that, that they're in? Like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you're not doing, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think the volume that exchanges do on lightning is noticeable in the accounting <laughs> in general so it's very useful for people but like the does it really bring that much to an exchange in pure business value of the trading piece more people trading not necessarily i do think there's a huge upside uh, to trading in Lightning with uh, because it enables traders to be significantly more capital efficient because you lose the need to pre-fund. So th that's another story, but we're not there yet because 
firstly, the network is not big enough. So you, if you still need to have channels open for uh, to all the exchanges, you didn't do anything in terms of pre-funding. So we still need a bit more maturity to get to that point where you could, I don't know, arbitrage between exchanges over lightning. But th that's something that I'm definitely very interested in how it plays out. But on the other hand, if you're an, a regulated exchange, now you have lightning. All of a sudden, like at some point, somebody needs to explain to an auditor, oh, this is that. No, we don't do KYC or we don't know where this, this came from. It just came from. And like, Sooner or later, somebody will say, okay, this is a small amount now, so maybe we're not bothered by it right now, but mm. at some point, let's figure this out. So with that, it might we might be doing ourselves more damage than benefits to do it this early because I'm not sure the industry is big enough that we can fight or industry is enlightening industry that we can survive this if some very strict regulation applies to this or at least it will slow down the progress a bit of everyone what do you think the alternative is right now if not to like pursue this path and like i mean partially assume the regulatory uh, reaction is not going to be that onerous and partially assume you'll be able to push back on it in some way, what, what would you think is the more appropriate approach? We, we need more use cases. We need people to actually start using Lightning for what it's meant for payment, not to withdraw your profits from an exchange. Sure, it's fun, it works, yeah. it's good to see, it's fast, but like it's meant to be a payment network. Like, let's create a local merchant solution for every country. Let's onboard people to value for value systems more and more like we, we need to create more demand bottom up so th then it's also easier to have a conversation with the, the government like people are just using it as cash so let's treat it as cash instead of just yeah the the thing that was always portrayed as yeah bitcoin is just for traders the first application is let's put lightning on exchanges. That's not necessarily the wisest approach. Right. What 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 would you say? Because you mentioned uh, the risk for all this liquidity centralizing, and then the regular more easily being regulatory having regulatory capture on the the big providers. What do you think the consequences of that would be? And how do you think that is avoided given that just kind of the structure of lightning and the reliability of liquidity and stuff like that, which correct me if I'm wrong, uh, kind of tends toward centralization. So if, if that is the case, and then you have what seems to be, and like this, may, I might just be somewhat pessimistic here, but I feel like there's going to be a, lar a lot of regulatory intervention in the next couple of years and everyone's going to be slapped with a money transmitter thing and as you say you know only the the larger entities will be able to uh you know meet the requirements let's say and then so what is the risk of them having met the requirements what could the regulators impose on them in terms of uh interrupting people's use of lightning well even if we just say Trevor rule that's happening for on-chain transactions and all of that, it will essentially it will lose all, it can lose all the self-custody benefits and everything if you're just prevented by doing transactions to 
from wallets or self-custodial if you don't have a KYC wallet installed on your app. But I think the, the, the problem comes from the other side, I think. Like, currently, in the last couple of years, the network topology didn't really grow naturally in terms of there was a demand somewhere and the cluster of liquidity was created around it. It was more, there's tons of enthusiasts and then, yes, let's connect to the five biggest nodes uh, in the network because we will have some liquidity and maybe we will gamify our ranking that somebody invented and it will show us in the top 10 score on some random website somewhere, but that doesn't serve a real economic purpose. So with more real economic activity coming on the network, I think we will see topology develop more organically. So you will see more clusters where there's something going on. So for example, if you're a merchant in Elzonte, you're not gonna be sending your payment to Australia and Japan to your neighbor. Like you're gonna use some local liquidity provider or have your own node or Bitcoin Beach Wallet, things like that. So we, when we have more and more of this, I think the topology will start to go more towards how internet is designed. So we have like local or regional hubs that are hyper-connected and you're not streaming the video to your neighbor across the world. You're doing it to, through the first hub. So I hope or think that the network will start growing that, but for that we need like actual adoption. So more, more circular economies or regional adoption instead of currently just us using Fountain and ZBD and getting sets from Thunder Games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's all. That's always been the the thing, the most important thing, right? More adoption. And, and oftentimes you run into kind of a chicken and egg sort of scenario. But yeah, I agree with you. But I guess like what do you think is uh well i mean i think first of all it must be noted it's interesting how all this develops and then people come in at different stages of bitcoin's uh uh you know life cycle or you know depending on what year they come in and with what philosophy they come in i mean in my perspective bitcoin is meant to be black so-called black market money right it's supposed to be non-state money and then but you know things evolve and you develop solutions and things work for a time because the regulatory framework is lax or unclear. And then there, you know, this whole conversation around, well, like how do we interface with the regulatory environment? And perhaps that's sensible because, you know, maybe there are ways to finagle something that, that works for a time. But so my, with that context, my question is kind of what, what do you think the consequences are of the centralization and the regulatory capture and what do you think the response will be um, in terms of developing an ecosystem that is impervious to regulatory intervention? That's a tough one. I mean, I'm pretty on the extreme side that government should not exist in the current situation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so my response to that will be we should definitely fight any kind of regulation because nobody should be forcing us to be in our pockets and in but, our but wallet. do you mean do you mean fight the regulation at the regulatory level or fight it by just building solutions that make the regulations obsolete 
th that never works. I mean, it does, but it also doesn't because yes, it works for people who go deep into the rabbit hole and know how to use the tech. But like for my mom, she's not gonna figure out how to use Tor and 700 different solutions to bypass uh, KYC for buying groceries. So we need to fight back at the grassroots level of actually educating people that the idea of government giving you permission to spend your money is not the default state of the world. It's something that came up fairly recently in the human history. So we should denormalize the level of surveillance that the countries are imposing on us and actually start from there, not trying to just fight, oh, we don't want to pay that much taxes on our Bitcoin. No, we should fight for our privacy and our freedom to actually spend our money as the way we want it. I mean, I totally agree with you, but my impressions of the world as it is to today and the way that most people think, you know, going back to that, that, you know, chicken and egg uh, dilemma, I would say that those, all those people will need a strong financial incentive first before they, you know, uh, develop a different philosophy or perspective on these things, you know, so it's, it's, it's difficult to persuade people to think about these things differently in advance of them seeing it as a necessity, you know, and we would all probably think that Bitcoin is a response to a necessity, you know, um, and that's why we're so into it. And then of course, by virtue of being in it, that also refines your perspective and, and your philosophy as you go deeper down the rabbit hole, as it were. But um, but, but, but I don't but, know. There just seems something wrong about like fighting all these regulatory. I, I get what you're saying. Like mom and pop aren't going to use it unless there's some kind of sanction. But again, isn't isn't that regulatory capture in itself? If you're acquiescing to, you know, if you're coming to the regulatory table, let's say, because the whole premise of that is they're going to attempt to maintain some semblance of control over you and your money and how you spend it. Cause if not, then what's the point of them trying to engage with you? So, you know, where do where do you draw the line between undoing what this whole thing is about in the first place and trying to make it palatable enough and to, and have sufficient regulatory flexibility to develop solutions that will be attractive to mom and pop and people that can't jump through all the the hoops to remain private and anonymous or you know outside the system down the road i don't think that's possible I mean, even if you look at what's currently happening in europe with the chat control proposal it's 1984 seems like a fairy tale compared to what european union is turning into yeah so, but you're saying it's not possible. That's good. You, you must have a pretty, you know, pessimistic view on the future. Then. No, I, I'm saying that it's not possible to actually come to a some sensible conclusion because the tendency of the government is always to overreach and to get deeper into our lives. Right. So I think one of the solutions is get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible, so then they see the use case. Because I speak with normally friends and they said, like, oh, I'm trying to, oh, but yeah, sending money to Vietnam is very easy now. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, I've never sent money out of the country. <laughs> I can't point to Vietnam on the map. Why would I send money there? But with, I don't know, gaming is a great use case. Mm. Just get some Bitcoin in the hands of people or podcasting or, I don't know, 
we need to find more ways to onboard people by not buying Bitcoin, but by earning it or getting it through gift cards, gaming, uh, actually watching ads or whatever schemes. So they get exposure to it and then they say, okay, I've played some solitaire on my phone like I do. And all of this, I can pay coffee with it. But then the government said, no, but you can't pay coffee with it because you need to uh, submit uh, like seven pages of paperwork to spend uh, $2 for it. Then maybe people start to think, wait, what does the government care about? Why should I do that? Because mm. it's the same as having $2 in your pocket. And if every time you want to spend $2 from your pocket, the, there would be a government official asking you, oh, can you show me your ID? Where did you get those $2? We wouldn't be having this conversation because there would be people on the streets fighting uh, right. against it. So we, I think we just need to spread the awareness of it as wide as possible, but by actually getting people to use it, to see how it's valuable, to create new use cases, because, I mean, lightning is... Ubiquitous. For example, I'm very bullish on combination of Noster and Lightning because it can do lots of that for people that I'm there's lots of people on Twitter that don't necessarily care about Lightning, but if they use an app, a Noster that automatically accepts tips for them, well, nobody's gonna throw away free money. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very good way to onboard people and to a much wider circle than the current community that we're all living in an echo chamber and not talking to normal people outside too much. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I'll touch on in a second the how strong of an incentive the the monetization of so much of your digital life, gaming, social media, this idea of the value-enabled web, right? I mean, again, as you say, even people that don't really give a shit about sound money and don't see the problems of a fiat money standard and all that kind of stuff. If you're just playing whatever the fuck people play these games these days, like uh, uh, call of duty or Minecraft or whatever. And the in-game currency is actually is a currency you can spend anywhere in the world rather than just within the ecosystem of the game. Well, that's kind of a game changer. And the same is true for whatever social media platform you use. If, if your tweet, if all the likes are payments, well then, you know, one, how much does that incentivize you to, to use the platform? And then from a content consumer's perspective, well, I'm producer, but how much does that up the value of the content that's being created when there's an, a, a, you know, a, a financial tether or incentive to the quality of the content? You know, I think that could, that could quite interestingly, uh, influence the type of content uh, that gets created and that gets that gets uh, propagated but before we you know maybe delve into that a bit what why can't why couldn't so to your point you you make the in-game money you try to spend the coffee but you know you have a reporting requirement and that just nullifies the benefit and it creates too much friction and all that kind of stuff uh why can't all this be built outside of regulatory awareness so in an, an anonymous way so for example you create an account with thunder games anonymously it's just your email address and you earn a bunch of sats by playing a game and then you go you go spend it into the bitcoin circular economy maybe it's a coffee shop maybe it's a restaurant 
There's no identifying information on any of the transactions that lead back to you. And you just contribute to that parallel economy in an anonymous way. No regulators can nail you down and you just, and that's how it, it grows. Why, in your opinion, could that not be the way that this ultimately scales all the way up to a competing parallel system and, and ultimately the dominant one? I mean, that, that's the dream, but th I think it's a kind of a chicken and egg problem because the adoption is not there yet. Like you don't have that many Bitcoiners. Maybe it works in Austin or some other places that are swarming with Bitcoiners, but in a smaller city, it's hard to currently find that many people who would just accept that. So by extent, you need to convince some merchants to use it. And the way government is usually impose regulation is like you, you don't forbid accepting Bitcoin. You just raise the bar so high that it doesn't make sense because currently two people per quarter will pay you with Bitcoin and you will need to install new software, get a new vendor for your point of sale system because you will need to report, I don't know what, to your tax office for that lightning transaction. So it's by just imposing the technological burden, it rises the cost so much that it doesn't start uh, at all because it's not worth it. So we, if we get Bitcoin into hands of many people, then instead of two people per quarter, you have two people per hour trying to pay for coffee with Bitcoin, then it's okay, not, not a problem. There's lots of people demanding it, let's use it. But for that, we need significantly more people using it as payment and get it into significantly more people's hands. But also for that to happen, we need to maybe make the space slightly more approachable because I still don't think we have any wallets that I would like to be the IT support for, for my parents. <laughs> uh, and what about that, that question from a few minutes ago where uh, a lot of the liquidity moves to, to the bigger providers, they have, they, you know, they're subject to regulatory capture. What do you see as the impact or, or downsides of that? Like, is it just I mean, that is it just that each individual has to be KYC so they give up privacy and then you know there's a the added friction of whatever reporting requirements come with that or is there a, a broader risk that you see to that? I mean the broader risk if we let that happen is that we've spent significant amount of time uh, and energy for something that didn't change anything if like that really turns into that dystopian future. But on the other hand, like there's there is a lightning network, but essentially there can be hundreds of lightning networks. Like we, we can just open channels between you and me, and we have a lightning network. It's a small mm -hmm. network, but it works. And that's like lightning is like internet. First, nobody thinks about the internet. You go to Facebook, but or you visit your local web shop you can be cut off from parts of the internet but the internet still works so as long as lightning is distributed enough you can either avoid the regulated pockets work around them or maybe you're captured inside them that's definitely one potential but also the way lightning works that's 
kind of hard to do, or at least then you get a closed network that just settles between, I don't know, five KYC exchanges, but you kind of know that upfront, because then it's just like using a Revolut or another fintech bank. It's mm. not exactly an open network anymore. But right. I think that uh, it is one scenario, but it's also like that's, I don't know, for users within one app that has lots of uh, users or maybe, I don't know, Strike, Cash App or whatever they create essentially a conglomerate, it, we still got a small benefit of at least, I don't know, a couple hundred million users being able to transact across several platforms. Is it great? No. Can we find alternatives for that? Absolutely. But I don't see that that would succeed in a way that we can't work around it because you're you can just open a channel to somewhere else. You can start using a different wallet. It's not like the, the benefit of Lightning is that it's not on chain. So you don't have a ledger, global ledger that everyone can see. You can mm -hmm. do what you want. You can send payments however you want, uh, or you can use a pediment. There's tons of ways to actually transfer your money around through different channels. So, I don't know, you can do a swap somewhere in between, things like that. So I, I think we need to work a bit more on Lightning to make it more uncensorable or more private, which will definitely uh, be greatly accepted by anyone trying to implement any AML. <laughs> and right. the KWP is on top of it. But it, if it's not possible to do it, then we won't do it because it's like physics. You can't pipe with physics, so you can't re regulate gravity, even though I'm pretty sure somebody would want to tax it. <laughs> um, so is, is this kind of how you guide your decisions at Bolt Observer? Like you're trying to build something that accounts for uh, these problems or risks and, and permit people, well, as we said at the beginning, permit people to be able to manage things in a non-custodial way and presumably in, in a manner that, um, well, is not impervious, but is resistant to regulatory capture or can operate outside of a regulatory captured environment? Yeah, so we build in a couple directions. We started the software as a service company just for ease of onboarding and simple distribution, but we are slowly moving towards more open core principles so you can you will be able to run some of the things on your own infrastructure if you're more sophisticated or care more you can also have different levels of privacy so for example maybe you don't care about sending some ba your balances somewhere you just want uh, to strictly have some in operational insight into it or you can flip a switch and I don't know, just share a couple of bits of it so you still get a lot of upside, but maybe instead of us telling you your inbound is 99% used, we can tell you your inbound is more than 80% used and things like that. So there's levels to how extremely privacy aware we are. Of course, this is 
it's a business solution. So it's there, you still need to get some level of visibility to improve the business operations. Otherwise, it's a black box and you can't do anything about it. Mm. So it, it's always a compromise on how you approach the system, but we're trying to build with uh, the awareness of it uh, and make uh, assumptions that at some point people will want uh, to have as much privacy as possible or run it in different aspects or different configurations depending on what their use case are and privacy needs or if they're a public routing node maybe they don't necessarily care because everything is already public or but also you're not going to be using a business b2b software as a service solution as a extremely privacy conscious individual that is fighting the government right right um do you think the lightning network as it is now you we both alluded to the value enabled web so-called uh, a little bit earlier which again i i think is may may be the catalyst i mean that and gaming which i guess you could lump in the same category may be the catalyst for you know the next billion bitcoiners because i just i think a lot of the people i mean this it'll still happen but a lot of the people that were really anti-fiat and really focused on you know monetary philosophy or monetary history a lot of those have been sucked into to Bitcoin already, but the sheer financial incentives that could be built into existing digital infrastructure, I think w are going to be extremely compelling, whether it's gaming, whether it's social media, whether it's content consumption, whether it's content creation, writing, all that stuff. If it can be infused with sats, if it can be infused with Bitcoin, uh, I just think the, the experience improves dramatically the quality of the content improves dramatically, and that will be a substantial catalyst for getting people to for you know to flip the switch or have a light bulb moment around Bitcoin. Um, is do you think the Lightning Network is at that stage where it can accommodate that amount of activity or that diversity of use cases or integrations? Like, what, what's your sense of where we are in terms of that picture and the technical technological? capacity at the moment I and mean, we're definitely not onboarding a billion users in the next three months so i i don't think we're ready for that because while the infrastructure has gotten better it's the network is still relatively small so we definitely need more investments in infrastructure and building this out to enable like a billion user scale but on the other hand Lightning Network works. I've had significantly less problems paying with uh, Bitcoin than with credit cards anywhere that I could pay with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it's a two-sided answer. Like, we, can we onboard a billion people tomorrow? No. Can we onboard 10 million per quarter? Possibly. It's just not happening overnight. But uh, we're definitely getting there. It's just, it's going to take a bit to polish all the corners, to improve the UX and everything. Because it also depends, like, can, I don't know, can Stripe and Cash App scale to a billion users? Probably. Can you onboard a billion users on a self-custodial way? No way. Right. 
Like, there's not even enough time to explain the recovery seeds to a billion users. <laughs> What's your what what um, development or infusion of Sats via Lightning into existing or novel di digital services or infrastructure are you most excited about? Uh, you know, you, you alluded to uh, podcasting 2.0 earlier, value for value, and you know, gaming. What do you what do you think either is either the most interesting or do you think will be part of that catalyst that I just referred to in terms of you know casting a much broader net and bringing more people in? I'm insanely bullish on machine to machine payments. And I have this crazy dream that at some point I will be when I'm late for a meeting able to tell my smart car you can spend up to I don't know 100 uh, case sets and just negotiate with the cars in front of me to move to the right lane so I can speed to the meeting. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, but, I don't think it, I don't think it comes before like uh, zaps on social media, but uh... <laughs> we're still a bit away from that, but it, it's completely possible. It could be done right now. I mean, if you're paying for electricity by streaming sets, why couldn't two cars talk to each other and say, oh, I'm going to accept 5k sets to move to the right lane i'm on a joy trip i don't care right things like that but also i think all of the things that you said are great and i like all of them but i think that this will open a whole new world of business use cases that we're not currently capable of imagining because yeah. it's like trying to come up with what the internet is going to bring in 1980. Yeah. Airbnb, are you insane? Like, no, nobody, <laughs> uh, somebody over internet is going to pay me and I'm going to give them the key to my house and they're going to sleep on my couch. Like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in the same way, I think that making payments ubiquitous in everything could open a completely new ways of uh, doing things. For example, the electric scooters and that uh, garbage that lies on every sidewalk. <laughs> Currently, you have to have a company that drives around, charges them, replaces them. I thought if that device was slightly smarter, you could pick it up, put it in your garage, charge it, put it back in while it's charging you. It can stream you sets because you don't need to have an account anywhere to get sets. You just need your lightning address or QR code or something, but like. You don't need to have my bank account. It makes sense to pay you 50 cents because it's cheap and there's no point of sale costs and things like that. So I think it, Lightning can enable tons of new things like that that currently don't make sense because exchanging money for services is so complicated. It works if you're a merchant, but you need to be a registered business and like have the infrastructure for it and bank account, but that's a very high barrier thing. Maybe not in the Western world, but slightly less developed or still developing countries, nobody has that. But also operating with cash is not the most practical, but if you combine the two, you can operate at a very small scale, unlimited across the globe, then I think that enables us to do very cool shit that we ha just don't have the capacity to imagine right now. I 
Yeah, I totally agree. You know, the, the scooter example is so fascinating because it makes me think um, streaming, like frictionless streaming payments, let's say, that everyone can opt into without needing to have anything other than, you know, an address effectively. Um, you know, it almost brings an ownership incentive. It's so many things, especially like internet connected devices, let's say, it uh, creates an ownership incentive. Uh, how, how should I put this? It broadens the, the, it offers an ownership incentive to anybody who's interacting with the thing. So for example, like you, you find that scooter and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to be paid 50 sats a minute to plug it into my wall at home. I, the electricity it's consuming for me to charge it is 20 sats a minute. So there's a 30 sats a minute spread. I'm going to go and care for this scooter Right? I'm going to go and plug it into my wall. I'm going to be paid 10,000 sats total. And then I'm going to return it to the sidewalk or wherever, or maybe it returns itself. I'm not even using of it, using it, but I'm caring for it in a sense because I have a financial incentive to do that. You know, So just the, the way that streaming payments allows for financial incentives to be both aligned and most likely greatly amplified is amazing. And then your example of the cars, it it also I think offers the capacity for a a financial incentive or a financial dynamic to be added to pretty much any given preference. You know, so to your example, like right now, you say, "Well, uh, I want to be able to pass that guy. That pat that guy that doesn't know he's blocking me from passing doesn't know I'm in a rush, and there's no way. One, there's no way to communicate that, and two, there's no way to." incentivize him to acquiesce to what I want. But as you say, if that could be done automatically, you know, you could just set your setting in the car. Hey, if someone pays me 5,000 sats, you know, uh, reduce speed, allow them to to pass or whatever it might be, then, you know, not, not only is that a better deal for everybody, but it's just this idea of, of so many more preferences that we might have entering into the market environment. Maybe, maybe you could put it that way. Whereas right now, like, you know, everything in the market environment is the things that you directly buy and sell, or you have, you have the capacity to buy and sell. It seems like this is going to broaden that tremendously because your capacity to so-called buy and sell um, is going to be dramatically broadened. And uh, man, the, just the, the, the behaviors that that's going to permit and incentivize and uh, in my opinion, improve. I mean, like anything, I'm sure there'll be some downside somewhere, but uh, it's just, as, well, as you say, it's impossible to imagine, but it's really exciting. Yeah, def I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. I think there are some potential downsides or at least friction to this because people don't want to think about it. There's a reason why Netflix has a subscription, not 50 cents per episode, right. because... You just pay and then you binge. Like you don't want to make another hundred thousand purchasing decisions. Right. The fewer the better, typically. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But but that can be abstracted away. So like you're not every time I want to send the tip or stream sets, I'm not gonna press accept or something. No, I just have some allotments. Okay, I'm willing to spend this much per month or on this, and then just distribute it and figure it out and like. My phone will learn over time, okay, you're on average listening to 50 hours of podcast uh, a month, they will distribute it like that. And you've boosted uh, 
John's show seven times, so you like him more, give him a bit more than the rest. And things. But that's all, all right. solvable problems with data. But and th that's definitely something that will need to happen because like, when you talk to normal people, no, but wouldn't you like to just pay for everything so you don't pay subscriptions? No, I like subscriptions. I don't care about them until you figure out to have subscription to 17 uh, content services and you're just watching things on YouTube and then then people start to reevaluate that. But mm -hmm. I think we will, the, the way the current web works, it's pretty ingrained into society right now. So it will take some time to get all the bad habits out. Like explaining value to, for value to a Bitcoiner is very simple. But explaining to somebody that has been listening to podcasts for free that, oh no, but like, why don't you send that guy some sets? It's like, why? It's free. <laughs> yeah. So we will yeah. need to present this in a way that people will understand it to make it more broadly appealing. But I think it's uh, it's completely doable. We just need to come up with the right uh, right way to do it. But and kind of get out of get down from the high horse that we as Bitcoiners like to ride a lot of times and maybe make it a bit more approachable. To people because normal people don't spend this much amount of time thinking about money. Right. A, a normal Bitcoiner thinks about money more in one day than a normal person in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. But how would you make it more approachable? What, or how do you? What's your process when you're having conversations with normies? How do, how do you make it more approachable? That, that, it's a good question. I mean, I'm going to start from a different end, from how we even talk about it. I, I think if for the, for lightning to succeed, nobody should use the word lightning in five years. Because like you're just not talking one. about internet. Or not, not or, just or, or sats. Or... Sats, or you just like pay me $10. I'm not specifying, oh, use this app to pay me with PayPal and three other acronyms that only people on the inside know. It just should be ubiquitous. Yeah, you have your something that looks like an email that's actually your master handle that's also your lightning address. That's people shouldn't know what's happening underneath. It just works. Like you're opening YouTube, you're not thinking about how the DNS request was made and how the packets were routed. And well, like people don't care about that. And people shouldn't know about it. It should be abstracted away in a sense that it just works. And that, that's something that will make things more attractive to people. One of the pet peeves that I have in the industry is that UX for everything just sucks. And like, I don't know, I've been tinkering around in this space for a while. So I have probably a hundred Lightning wallets and accounts on every possible service. And all of that services have 20K sets here, 20K sets there. Like, mm. Even if I want to consolidate it, how do you send the entire amount? You can't. Oh, fees might be this much. I'm going to leave this much here. Like it's simple things like that. But mm. like you, when you think about it, it's annoying. It's horribly annoying. Like you just have one login. Stacker News wants my set. Okay. I'm going to have a, a limit. Okay. Stacker News can use up to. 
100 sets per day on my tips, things like that. So we need to make this just work together. Not, yeah, not I agree. Accounts and accounts not, and all of that. So everything should be like one app or your nodes. You have the keys at home, nodes run somewhere in the cloud, whatever. Like green light, what Breeze is doing right now something in that direction that enables just an integration of everything together that it just works yeah well i mean it it kind of sounds like that's wrapped up in the notion of like a decentralized identity of some kind where you you know you have a unified identity and you you only reveal as much as you need to depending upon the service or app that you're using but it all in some manner is managed within that identity. So you don't need to have basically a hundred different identities and a hundred different logins and a hundred different addresses and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's, it's probably a, rel a fairly difficult uh, challenge to overcome, but it seems like people are working on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the centralized identity thing has been tried, has been a problem that people have been trying to solve for a very long time. Mm. That's something that we made that much progress in the last 50 years but on the other hand like now with i mean i just recently had a conversation with somebody regarding master and uh, keys and how people will handle that and i still think that normal people don't want hardware devices so we need to figure out some way how to deal with that because in the end, it always comes down to public key cryptography. But the, the premise of here's, I don't know, 24 words or a hex a string that you need to remember, or you will lose access to all of your data, all of your funds. That's a, not a good proposal that people love. Yeah. It's, it's a very high barrier for people to go into it it might be beneficial to them in terms of actually breaking the mentality and training wheels that, okay, now you actually have the ownership of your money, your data, your things like that. But there's a lot of friction on that path that it's not, if we want higher adoption, we kind of at least need to lower that barrier a bit or make some sort of, common sense approach to how to handle this. I mean, everybody already has a device that can reasonably securely store things. It's called a phone. We've been carrying them around them for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So there might be a way to do something around that. Of course, it's not as secure as you would want it to be for your life savings. But I also think that significantly more Bitcoin will be lost on hard hardware wallets and encrypted backups than was ever stolen from any exchange. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you know, it, it's that age because security, I mean, it, you could, I think there's an interest, a relatively interesting discussion to be had about the problem of security being incredibly influential in the very, uh, how like in the very structure of civilization how civilization emerges because you know it's it's always about what's the most valuable thing well the most valuable thing is the thing that's fought over the most and when you have the most valuable thing how do you make sure that no other people get it you know and and that creates hierarchy of kings and governments and power and 
all the way down to an, your own an, an individual because people have let's let's because you as you say like people don't like the notion of having a private key for all their money or all their online identity or whatever but you know people have stored their most precious items jewelry cash gold for a long time in a bank safety deposit box right and that was considered you know the vault within the vault and that's where i put the stuff that i just cannot lose and you know by and large well i should be careful how i say this because there's been many many instances where that trust has ultimately been misplaced or violated but people developed a comfort around how to secure the most important thing you know and so whether it's a a diamond ring or whether it's a bar of gold or whether it's a steel plate stamped with 12 words there's at least a, a some familiar familiarity with the notion of securing the things that are of the greatest value now you know we're supposing that those things are going to be even more valuable because it's basically limitless how much value that information can contain that information can contain all of your wealth and it can contain all of your identity and so that's far more valuable than just a few you know gold bars or diamond rings or whatever but again it comes back to that issue is civilization is predicated on the ability to manage uh ownership of the most valuable things and information let's say and so how do we solve that problem and one of the things that i often think about is you know you talk about uh you know how do you make it more usable and how do you abstract away the complexity but i do wonder like how much do you want to how much uh, complexity do you want to abstract away and how much do you want to leave in so that it's the user that's forced to change their behavior rather than the technology. And this is perhaps a broader discussion about Bitcoin itself. You know, like let's say in terms of protocol development, how much do you just want to keep making changes? So you're because you're catering to the more quote, quote unquote normal people under some assumption that adoption is not happening fast enough. And how much do you want to leave it? more as it is, not make as many concessions, not cater to the, you know, the imperfections or the uh, uh, trepidations of uh, prospective users. And in doing so, force them to change their perspective and behavior on things. And I, I think this somewhat gets to the notion of, which I'm sure you're familiar with, safe explored a little bit in the Bitcoin standard, but, you know, the the cultural influence of of the money in use, let's say. And if we really are saying that Bitcoin is, you know, potentially the catalyst for a type of renaissance, um, well, how much do we want to uh, cater to the behavior of so many people that we might agree ought to be upgraded or improved anyways? You know what I'm trying to say here? Like how much, how, how much do we want to let it change us versus us change it? And if it's the latter, maybe we end up destroying it by by leaning too far into the us changing it approach to it. No, I agree. And I think you touched this uh, quite significantly at one of the closing the loop episodes with Gigi. Uh, th this is a particular topic, but uh, I mean, uh, we, don't, we shouldn't be catering to everything that people have now, but to return to the first point you made, Yes, people have been historically taught to protect the most valuable thing. 
but in the recent years or couple, last couple ten decades, that thing has become digital. And mm. so, like, if you had the I don't know a gold bar hidden in a wall at home, that was significantly harder to steal than your Bitcoin, who you can just transfer across the world in an instant. I still had to come to your home, found the wall, steal it, or I don't know, hold you hostage until you tell me that. So through the advancement of technologies, the security implications changed a bit in a way that it's now basically the playground is global for theft and everything. And it became significantly more complex. But to your point, we as a civilization definitely made people very lazy in terms of we will take care of you and that's right. like the typical no ownership uh, just be a happy citizen pay taxes and we will take care of you uh, kind of approach that people have and i hate it so much but uh, i definitely don't want to for like Bitcoin community to go into that direction, but I still think that it comes back to a conversation that I have with many Bitcoiners. Like Bitcoin should still be a tool for people and a usable tool. So you don't need to know the white paper by hand to be allowed the, to use Bitcoin. It just should be usable for you. Of course, we should slowly or in a measured way drive people towards improvement to think in the way that they should to have self-ownership to actually understand what they're doing instead of just being uh, complacent and think that somebody else will solve all of their problem because that's why what brought us to the place where we are that we actually need bitcoin but it's still i think you can agree that there is a step towards that direction that can be taken without compromising Bitcoin because there's lots of things that could be improved in this ecosystem in terms of usability and user experience without compromising any of the principles. I definitely agree with that statement. I just don't know where the line is. You know, like I, I, I don't know how far is too far. And I mean, the, the market will ultimately decide, but you know, when the, I don't know, when, when the market has such a profound influence on, on the mechanics of all this, uh, I don't know how you, how you navigate the proper balance of those two things. So, I mean, we will obviously find out, but. I mean, the markets always tend to overcorrect. So uh, we will either go too far in one direction and then pull back or, it's hard to say where the line is, but because we don't know how far we can go. It's the same as, I don't know, encryption. At first it was, yeah, okay, it's not that important. Then at some point, oh, maybe let's encrypt the banking information because my credit card number is still something that I care about. Then the government said, oh, people are not using encryption, let's store everything. So it, it, it's an evolving story. And yeah. now we realized we made lots of mistakes. So hopefully we learned something. And I, I, I wish we could just snap a finger and people would wake up, start to own their own assets and stop using banks. But I still think we need to 
makes somewhat of a slightly less radical approach to certain mm. things, just so yeah. we make it slightly more easier for people to actually understand us. Yeah, well, sure, sure. I guess part of the question is, what are the risks of you know any of the things you, you decide to work on? And what if any of them, any of those directions would be uh, pose ex existential risks to Bitcoin? Because those, you know, by definition, those are the ones that you definitely want to avoid. And the other ones, you know, you can either get away with or or are ultimately beneficial. You know, I, so it's it's to what degree does does the direction and the approach uh, increase any of the known and unknown existential risks to Bitcoin's success or existence? You know. Yeah, that's going to be something that we'll have to figure out along the way. <laughs> When you're a kid, you always eat some dirt and your immune system learns to handle it. But you, you try to avoid the glowing stuff. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully we don't eat anything glowing and uh, the dirt was, just makes us stronger in terms of FDXs and things like that. Right, right. What, what if any, do you think, are, what, are, what are the biggest risks you see to, I guess this can be two-part, Bitcoin's adoption which we've kind of covered already, and Bitcoin's uh, persisting existence or continued existence? Well, I definitely, I am very pessimistic in terms of how things are developing in the Western world, because while it won't be completely out loud, there's a strong chance that we essentially have not to change, but basically two Bitcoins, one that exists in a KYC world and the one that uh, is non-KYC. So maybe you can exit the KYC world back to the free world, but you won't be able to get back into it. Th that's definitely, I think, one of the things that is closer than you think it is because it's already happening on a large scale with most of the people using custodial services or buying KYC Bitcoin. So there's, it's already everywhere. And if you buy something, you're using a wallet where that you didn't KYC or the merchant needs to know something about you. So I think with the crackdowns that are coming, that's a strong possibility that we need to try to avoid because that, that, that would, significantly slow the progress, especially because there's not enough demand for real Bitcoin usage in the more developed world, because it's just, you talk with people in Europe, US, you have 17 apps on your phone where you can send each other $10. Mm. So it's less of a use case if you're not more deeper into the system and use value for value podcasting and all of that and you actually know so like it's harder to convince people that they need another app as they see it to send money around when they can already Venmo, PayPal or whatever everyone that they need versus in more developing world when those are not available or people don't even have bank accounts, things like that, that essentially they just skip the generation. They went from cash to mobile phones and 
So it's much easier to present the, the actual use case and they use remittances, they get money from abroad, things like that. So uh, I'm very bearish on uh, the West and very bullish on the global South for lack of the better word. Mm -hmm. And what about, so that's adoption. What about risks to Bitcoin more broadly, if any, that you see? I mean, not necessarily risks. It's more gonna. Be, I think it's gonna be rocky, but that it will just mean that we might see some shifts around the world where developers are, where companies are getting built. If the environments become too too hostile to developments in that direction, I, I think. But that's. In the end, that's probably gonna be very beneficial to the world because we can, in a way, rebuild it or get go more towards the sovereign individual test. This is where you're essentially shopping for a better jurisdiction, as I'm doing right now myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but the risk is that this might take a while, so it. We, we might see a lot of pain before we see the sunlight uh, in that direction, but it also presents very good opportunities uh, for companies, people, spaces, countries even to lift themselves up and create a better world in which we all want to live instead of the one we're currently heading to. Yeah, totally agree. Uh you mentioned, I'm, I'm not sure if it was in the DMs before this, or I think it was, might have been the originally the original Calendly invite, but you also had some, uh, you know, uh, uh, controversial opinions or, you know, opinions that differ from the norm. So we're coming up on the end of the show now. So I was going to ask you, one, if there was anything else you wanted to cover or introduce or discuss today, and two, um, what some of those controversial opinions might be. That's, I mean, I've pro probably m mentioned some of them throughout the show. As uh, you, you can see, I'm extremely pro European Union. And <laughs> I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think your disdain for the EU is a controversial opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I, I do think that uh, maybe Bitcoin development is not focusing on all the right things currently or we're uh, getting a bit too righteous in some ways uh like it, it comes all comes back to the kind of discussion that we touched it's like how much should we change bitcoin versus how much bitcoin should change us but mm -hmm. it also goes back to what do we need in the ecosystem or should we think, leave things as they are for example rbf uh, no rbf and i could argue both sides i just think that we in the industry occasionally like to create problems where they are none just because two bitcoins between two bit, bitcoiners can only agree on one thing and that's TikTok next block, everything else is just up for debate. And we're all always happy to debate everything endlessly from stainless steel to 
between your favorite that, uh, that's what that's what happens when you get a lot of um disagreeable strong-willed people on a pursuit of truth right i mean everyone wants to know what the truest truth is i, I agree and it's fun and cute and everything but at the occasion it's just like come on guys can we just not do this again so when you when you refer to the righteousness of some of the direction and development community let's say do you mean the righteousness is characterizing the unwillingness to introduce uh novel changes and you think you know the the opposite approach or more an approach more willing to experiments the wrong word but ad adopt certain changes is is preferable yes and no the 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 problem is that the you can have the newest nft on bitcoin debate could be the same characterized as the same as rbf it's wasn't meant to be used or shouldn't be used like that people are still using it and i'm not not saying that either of those two are the biggest issues or that i yeah want to change anything on either of those i just think that both debates to some extent were pointless but there were tons of opinions being made on either, either side and there's value in both sides but should we change something just because there's a couple holy opinions in the space and maybe the other side that is arguing for state to remain the same has worse reputation or comes more from a business side i mean sure we had the same debate a couple of years ago in terms of block space so i can see how there should people should still have some bad uh, feelings around business use cases in terms of uh, bitcoin and things like that but i just think that uh, Having civil wars like that is very good for the enemy and very bad for the ecosystem itself. And I think that the enemy is closer than we think. And we should maybe focus slightly more outwards and see what we can change in the world, not just internally in the space and could to convince what piece of meat is the best one for you tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree. But I, my two responses that come to mind is one, I, I think this is just kind of the contentiousness and care that you get when people recognize the preciousness or the value of something or, you know, or are attempting to steward something that they believe is of the utmost value in, in the proper way. And so you, you get these, you know, conflicting opinions and, uh, and that, that much kind of emotion wrapped up in it all. And then, you know, the, as you're saying, um, the murky, muddy waters of rough consensus are, I mean, it's kind of like uh, animal spirits in a sense, right? You know, to borrow a Keynesian uh, phrase, because it's like, well, how how does this stuff take place? And, you know, and, and again, that, that's probably a feature, not a bug, ultimately, but it, it creates uh, a lot of confusion sometimes. Uh, and then, you know, when you mentioned uh, civil war, what came to mind, and this may not be um, an appropriate analogy or comparison, but what came to mind was the American Civil War. I watched the Ken Burns documentary like six months ago, it's a phenomenal 10 part series. 
Um, and that was a, just a horrific thing, right? 600,000, uh, you know, U.S. soldiers died. The, the most, most soldiers that have ever died in any conflict the U.S. has was engaged in. Um, but the result of it was a, you know, more unified, strong, powerful nation, whatever your opinions are, you know, on the nation state and the, the world as it exists today. But I wonder uh, if that's not, you know, the case here, you know, the, these, these civil wars, these big fights that are played out, you know, maybe they have to be because that's the only way to resolve the conflict. And, you know, hopefully their resolution winds up in something that's better for it and stronger for it and not, not weaker for it. And, and, and also part of the analogy that I thought when you mentioned that was like, surely the French and the British and whatever other European powers would have been happy to see the U.S. fighting amongst itself in the mid 1800s because they were still, you know, trying to jockey for, you know, supremacy and influence and all that kind of stuff. And that was probably correct. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure they were doing all they could to maybe foster the continuation of that. But again, punchline being they came out of that and presumably uh, wound up being stronger, more unified as a result. So I don't know how you avoid uh, those contentious conflicts when there's something so valuable at stake, you know, that's, that's the 21 million Bitcoin question. Yeah, no, you, you have a strong point and I just hope that, uh, we end up being the United States in that story, not some Latin American country <laughs> in the CIA, CIA then in the middle of the civil war just installs a new government. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a very good rebuttal. I'll, I'll grant you that. Uh, well, man, this has been great. Uh, I appreciate you making the time today and and for a discussion. Any uh, places you want to direct people or anything like that, Twitter handle or um, uh, uh, bus business yeah. you've been working on before we shut it down? Uh, yeah, totally. Come check out what you're doing at bold.observer or bold.observer on Twitter. That's where we update everything that uh, is currently going on. And we just released a couple of new features lately in terms of liquidity management, supporting more implementation. So follow us and uh, figure out uh, what we're up to. And thanks for having me here. It was a fun discussion. Definitely touched a lot of interesting subjects. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Again, thanks for the time and, and best of luck with uh, the projects and uh, keep in touch. We'll, we'll talk again sometime in the future. Perfect. Have a nice All right, brother. week. Take care, Bye. you too.